If you didn't know any better, you'd think that we worship Jesus here. Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and truly we do worship Him. If you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's make a prayer together, and then I'll give you this, uh, I'll give you this sermon. Precious Father, I stand before you and I ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to say to say the words of this sermon, I commit it to, to you as my act of worship, Father. And I pray that you would use this message for your own glory to do things that I, I know I cannot do. We trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's precious and glorious and wonderful name. Amen. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, one of the themes of his letter was the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because the second coming of Jesus Christ will bring to an end the power of the curse over all elements of creation. This is why it says in Romans, the creation is groaning. Creation is groaning under the power and presence of the curse of the fallen world, under the curse of sin. And it will be when Christ returns that this curse is broken. Now when Jesus returns, it will also bring about the resurrection of the dead in Christ. Not the resurrection of all dead, but the resurrection of the dead in Christ. Because the scripture tells us that there are two resurrections. Two separate, distinct resurrections that take place at two different points in time. John chapter 5, 28 and 29. Jesus says that there will be a, all the dead will hear my voice and live they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, the book of Revelation in chapter 20 tells us that that second resurrection, that second resurrection takes place at the end of the millennium when all the dead who are not in Christ rise from the dead. The first resurrection, Jesus returns, the saints are resurrected, the living saints are changed. The second resurrection takes place after the millennium when all the damned rise. All the dead outside of Christ will rise from the dead. Two resurrections, 1,000 years apart. So when Christ returns, there's going to be this resurrection of the dead in Christ. Now for the Christian, dying and going to heaven is good. We have to admit that it's good because the Apostle Paul said, when he wrote his letter to the Philippians, he said, I'm in such a twist down here. Things, my, my, he's, he's hurting in his body. He's under persecution in Philippians. He's actually writing to the Philippian church from jail. And while he's in jail, he says, I have a struggle here, a conflict. I, want to desi- I desire to go and be with God, to die, which is far better. But I also want to stay here with you guys and minister to you and help you and see you prosper in your Christian life. So dying and going to heaven is good, but dying and going to heaven is not the best part. If dying and going to heaven was the best part of the Christian life, then every funeral for a Christian should only be marked with rejoicing and joy. Now, I've been to funerals. I've been to Christian funerals. I've been to non-Christian funerals. I, was, I, get, I did a funeral for some people in Texas who I didn't even know. They called me out of the phone book and asked me if I would do a, a funeral for them. And I said, sure. 
And they said, give us a little time because we're digging the grave ourselves." And I thought, what does that mean? <laughs> Did they do somebody in and they're burying them in the back of the ranch? I don't know. And so, anyway, it, what happened was a guy, he had, he had overdosed and died. And the family was in conflict over it. They had no money. They, they got somebody to donate an embalming. They got another funeral home to donate a casket. They got somebody to donate a, a grave plot in a graveyard. And when they, in Texas, where we lived, that was very rocky. And when they had got down about three feet, they hit, they hit limestone. And they had to rent a jackhammer and jackhammer that sucker out of there. And so by the time I got there to the, do the graveside, it was the, me, and the funeral, me and the funeral director were there. And we waited to the appointed time we were there, you know. And nobody showed up, just me and him in this coffin. And he said, they're coming. I know they're coming. And I said, well, maybe you could call them. So it was back early days of cell phones, he calls. And uh, somebody said, yeah, we're on the way. They were an hour and a half late. But when they showed up, it was a big old pile of people. And you could tell from the minute they got out of their cars that there were two sides to this. And they were in conflict. One group of people on one side of the grave, one people on the other side of the grave. If you can picture in your mind the most ragged, jagged hole you can imagine. Just, I'd been to many funerals. This was totally the worst looking funeral I've ever been to as far as the way it was arranged. And I stood there by the coffin and I looked at those people and I looked into the eyes of people who had zero hope, zero joy. Not a single person there, to my knowledge, was a Christian. The man that we laid into the ground to his eternal rest, he was not a Christian. And my friends, when they started throwing the dirt on that coffin, it was a very sad sight because that person died without any hope. The family had no hope themselves. And I tried to tell them the gospel, they could have hope. And I don't know if it had any lasting effect or not. I, I heard nothing from it. And then I've done funerals that are exactly the opposite. I've laid to rest wonderful Christian people and had congregations to, to listen to the gospel and they hear it with joy and happiness in their heart. The singing is, is big and the, and the testimonies and eulogies are glorious. So there are two kinds of funerals. But if dying away in heaven is the best part, then every Christian funeral should only be marked with joy. But I've been to funerals for Christians that are not joyful. They're sad. They're sad. It's sad to take your loved one to the funeral home and take them to a graveyard and lay them to rest. It's sad. It's sorrowful. We feel the pain of loss. And just because they die in Christ, just because they die as Christians, we still feel the deep loss of our friend, of our lover, advisor, and fellow pilgrim to eternity. Now, it's true that we don't sorrow like others do, but our comfort in loss is not found in looking forward to the day when, when we die and go be with them, is it? We don't find our comfort there. Where we find our comfort and our joy is in the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ. Our own death keeps alive that cycle of pain and sorrow. Because even though when I die and go to glory to be with my grandparents who passed away and friends and loved ones who are over on the other side, I'm still going to leave a, a hole in my family. You know, the old adage, this little maxim I live by, is I want, 
I really hope six people come to my funeral. Valerie and all five of the kids. If nobody else comes, that's okay with me. Because, but those six people I've spent my whole life with, you know, and loved and cared for. I want them to come, of all the people. Now, if they can't come because they're in jail, that's okay, too. That's okay. <laughs> but, but if they're not incarcerated, I want them to come. <laughs> Although I've been to, I, was, I, was, I did a funeral in Arkansas one time. And I was sitting there at the front of the church looking at my Bible, you know, praying and trying to, you know, get the help of the Holy Spirit. When I heard the clank of chains coming in, and they did bring a lady from the ladies' prison in Arkansas to come down to her mom's funeral. It was a, it was a precious and sad scene, to be honest with you. But even our own death is going to keep alive that cycle of pain and sorrow and loss, thing of loss within those who love us. So our friends, our comfort is found in the resurrection of the dead. Because when the resurrection takes place, death is no more. Death is gone. And this is established and guaranteed for us in the future by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we all experience death because we're sinners. And the wages of our sin is death. But the resurrection that's in the future, it is the gift of grace that is bestowed on all who believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. The resurrection is key to our religion, and it is the resurrection that people mock and laugh at the most. And we'll be tempted sometimes to give up this essential tenet of our faith. But our religion, Christianity, is a resurrection religion. Listen to Romans chapter 4, verses 24 through 25. Just a part of verse 24. Um, and I'm supplying the word righteousness in my reading. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead the Lord, from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. Jesus rose from the dead so that we can be justified because his resurrection is the proof of purchase. It's the proof that he paid the full price for sin. The resurrection. Jesus came forth from the grave. His body began to breathe again when he had paid the full price for our sins and he rose and he is risen today and sits on the throne where he is the eternal symbol of salvation for those who believe that he died and rose for them. It's the resurrection that provides the certainty of eternal life for all who believe. How do you, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, how can you be assured that you're going to live again? How can you be assured that your sins are forgiven? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, let's go fishing. In fact, I'll tell you this. If Jesus hasn't, li- hasn't risen from the dead, then I say, fooey on fishing licenses. Fooey on size limits. Fooey on game laws. If there is no resurrection, I say, let's not, let, why bother with the law at all? Right? Bring back dueling. That's what I say. It's only Christianity that gives us a cause and a reason to obey the laws. It's that Christ has set up these governments. Christ has arranged the laws of the land. He wants us to follow them. 
Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 24. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? This was a thing going on Paul's day. They're saying there is no resurrection. Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ. Whom did he not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised? For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, this resurrection is essential to our faith. If Jesus is not resurrected, it's all in vain. And our message is silly because we proclaim Christ crucified and risen from the dead. If in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if, but, in fact, but if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man came also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his order. Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The resurrection is the certainty. It provides us the guarantee of eternal life for those who believe. Now, the Apostle Paul, he, he writes about this resurrection to the Thessalonians. He also writes, writes about it to the Corinthians because that's exactly where the Greeks would stop listening. Remember when Paul went to Athens? He went to Mars Hill where all the big brain guys are at, where all the philosophers were, all the thinkers were. And Paul says to them, I'm here to talk to you about the unknown God, the God you don't know. And he talks to them. He talks to them about how he is, God has made the world and he's established the bounds of man's habitation. And that we all have our existence within the power and maintaining order of God through Christ. And the Athenians, when they hear Paul's talk, they say, this, this guy's on to something here. There's something that was ringing the bell in their heart. But then when Jesus really started to press home the claims of Christ, Acts 17, he started telling them that Jesus, this creator God, this ruler God, this savior God, he tells them that he died and rose from the dead. When he said that, Acts 17.32 says, they began to mock. Now, have you ever heard somebody has a really crazy idea? Just, just an off-the-wall, wackadoodle idea? You ever had that? Now, there's different ways you can respond to it. And I got a lot of friends who are preachers. And almost, almost all preachers that I know except one, are nuts. <laughs> the only one I know who's not nuts is I know him really well. <laughs> and, and I have been sitting in restaurants talking to pastors, and I've heard some real cuckoo stuff. 
And here's what I always say. If I'm talking to you and you say something cuckoo, here's how you're going to know that I think it's cuckoo. Because I say, that's interesting. <laughs> it's very non-combative. It's, it's very cordial. I say, interesting. In fact, I was, t- I was talking to a friend of mine, and we were sitting in Burger King up here. He, was from, he's, he came up here to see me from Arkansas. Actually, he came up here to see some salmon. <laughs> and, uh, and I was a byproduct. We were, we were fishing, and we went, to make, we went to Burger King. We were eating over there, and he was telling me something. And I told him about some other wacko that we both know. And I said, and I told, and he said, what'd you say? I said, I say what I always say. Interesting. And then he told me something that he was doing at his church. And I said, guess what? And he said, I guess that's not a good idea, is it? And I said, oh. <laughs> Interesting. But the, now, every once in a while, you'll hear an idea that's so stupid that you can't help but mock it. You can't help but go, what? Are you crazy? What kind of crack are you smoking? You just, you're just blown away by the insanity of the statement. Now, I've been around people who are highly educated, and highly educated people, they know how to hear ideas and process ideas and viewpoints of all kinds. And they don't usually just fall right into mocking or making fun. But my friends, when these Athenian big brains, when they heard Paul say that a man had really lived, really died, and bodily rose from the dead, they said, (laughs) get a load of this crackhead. Can you believe what he's saying? He's nuts off the chain. He's he's a lunatic. They mocked. And that is exactly how people are going to be about their resurrection. If you ever get a chance to maybe read Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, which is an anti-theist book, you'll be struck by the viciousness, the vitriol with which he attacks God. If you read his autobiography, Hitch 22, you'll see over and over again every poke he can make at God. Everything he can do to ridicule and mock what Christians believe, he does. Because that's what people do. Now, that's what they do today. They mock the resurrection because today everybody's way more intelligent than they were 2,000 years ago, right? Is that right? Are we more intelligent than we were 2,000 years ago? No, we're not more intelligent. We have more knowledge. But Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. There are new things, but there are no new ideas. Keep that in your mind. There are new things, but there are no new ideas. How many of you guys ever heard of Dick Tracy? Used to pass their first Baptist. <laughs> and in the Dick Tracy comics, he has, there's a little comic where he is, has a watch, and he's talking to somebody on his watch. Dun, dun, dun. Now, I didn't wear my Apple watch today. I wore this watch that Valerie and the kids got for me two years ago. And, uh, but on my Apple watch, I can talk to people on it. Now, my, my particular version, I can't see anybody on it. But last night, I was fishing. And while I was on the river, uh, waiting on a fish to bite, I called a friend of mine who's in 
who's in Chiang Mai, Thailand, who's a missionary, because it's morning over there, I want to talk to him. And I just hit FaceTime, and just like that, there he and I are talking face to face. Clear as a bell. He's in Thailand. I'm over here. I'm on the riverbank fishing. He's over there wishing he was over here with me. He said it was very cold in Chiang Mai yesterday. He said, when I went into my office, it was 36 degrees Celsius. <laughs> That's real hot. <laughs> These Athenians, when they heard what Paul said, they mocked. Because even in that time, just like today, these superstitious Athenians, they did not believe in bodily resurrection from the dead. They did not believe it. Even the Jews, they only believed there would be a bodily resurrection in the last day, in the end of the world. But they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. It was very common for them to believe in a spiritual resurrection Because nobody could prove if that was real or not. But nobody had seen a dead person come back to life physically. It was unknown to them. So when Paul says, Jesus Christ, a real living man, died, was buried three days, and rose again, they laughed at it. Because they had never seen it. No one they had ever known had seen it. No one they'd ever read of had seen it. So they mocked it. This resurrection of the dead was so foolish to them that they just set it aside. But if you read Acts 17 there, it says that some people who heard this message, they did believe. They did believe. What makes the difference in that kind of a situation? You ever thought about that? How is it that you have two people go to the same church week after week, one person is soundly and beautifully converted and becomes a Christian, and the other person walks out and says, that's all a bunch of hooey. What's the difference? Well, the difference is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to open people's eyes. The Holy Spirit has to make people aware. The Holy Spirit has to teach in this John chapter 6, every man who comes to Christ is taught by God. And that's a quotation from Isaiah. The Holy Spirit makes the difference, which is very good because the Holy Spirit is unstoppable when he means to save somebody. You can't stop him. You can't trip him up. He's not limited by time or space. Maybe, I think it was maybe Father's Day or Mother's Day a year ago. I gave that sermon about this sermon's getting too long already. I'm just going to skip ahead. <clears throat> now, when the Apostle Paul, when he went to Thessalonica, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ to the Thessalonians because you cannot preach the gospel without preaching the resurrection. One of the weaknesses of most of our evangelistic methods is that we often, knew, we often neglect to mention that it is through Christ's death and resurrection that salvation is available to sinners who believe. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, where the Apostle Paul says, I spoke to you these things of first importance, how Christ, according to the Scriptures, died and was buried and rose again the third day and was seen of 500 witnesses, and he lays it out. The gospel must be proclaimed. And that's not just Jesus will forgive you of your sins. The gospel includes Jesus died and rose from the dead and beckons to you from heaven, come to him through the Holy Spirit. But in this letter to the Thessalonians now, the apostle Paul, he talks to them 
about the resurrection of Christians they know who have died and of their own resurrection. Now let's take a reading finally from our text. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Listen to the reading. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, there are three lessons from this passage. I'll give them to you quickly. First of all, the Bible says here that the dead are asleep. This does not mean that they are in a state of soul sleep where they're not anywhere in particular. It's figurative. It just means that they are at rest. It means they are alive but not in danger. Because when you're asleep, usually you're okay. It means your surroundings are okay. It means that you're okay. The second thing is that when Jesus comes, the sleepers are going to come with him which means that they must be with him. Their souls are with him. Now, we read this morning, Psalms 116, purchases and eyes of the Lord of the death of his saints. The Apostle Paul says in another place, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So every person who is a Christian who has died, their soul is with the Lord. And then when Jesus returns, he's going to come back with all those people He's going to reconnect them with their bodies and they'll be resurrected from the dead in a new and glorious body. I was giving a funeral graveside service recently here in Sheboygan and I was talking to these people about the resurrection of their loved one. You know, everybody has questions about the resurrection body, right? What's it going to be like? Now, when I was a kid growing up, it, it, was, it was a teaching that said, when you come out of the grave, you're going to be like Jesus. So we're all going to be clones of Jesus. Now, that's unusual unusual because your body is so important that it's going to be resurrected now i want you to look at yourself for a second look yourself right in the eye <laughs> now you see how you are <laughs> or look at your neighbor and look out and see how they are and and i have some news for you everybody here you look exactly like god wanted you to look now, I know some of you don't like that idea because, you know, if you're like me, you wish you were six foot two, wish you had black hair that never turned gray. <laughs> you, you wish you would change things about yourself. But it's how God wanted you to be. And in the resurrection, my opinion is when you rise from the dead, you're going to look like you look now. All these characters and features. You say, well, I don't like the way I look. That's because you look at yourself through eyes that are fallen. Now, I've, we've, Baller and I, we've had five children together. And at some point, the kids will say, I don't think I'm very attractive. I don't think I'm very handsome. I don't think I'm very pretty. And what do parents say to their kids when they say that? 
What do you say? Yes, you are. No, why do you say that? Are you a big, fat, bold-faced liar? Is that what you, are you lying to them? No, you're not lying to them because you see, you see them with a different perspective than they see themselves. You see that their beauty is not only in their countenance or their height. You see them as a whole person. You have a better perspective for them than they do. I mean, when I was a teenager, I thought I would never get married because I was so hideous. And then I won the lottery and had plastic surgery. <laughs> I mean, you, but you see, you see yourself in the wrong way. God sees you as his own perfect creation. God made you to be how you are. And when you rise from the dead, you're going to be like you are, I think. And I think you're going to be 100% satisfied. And everybody you know is going to be satisfied. But most of all, God, your Father, is going to be satisfied too. In the resurrection. The resurrection is going to be so wonderful. The third thing you see here is that the dead, the sleeping and the living, they will be reunited with each other and be permanently with Jesus. Now, this idea of permanence with Christ is such a blessed truth because now we are with Christ spiritually. Spiritually, we're seated with him in heavenly places. Christ is with us through the Holy Spirit right now. He lives within us. But I think you and I know, have you ever had these times in your Christian life, my dad would call these Holy Ghost meetings, where you feel like the Holy Spirit is with you and closer to you than he is at other times? When I was a kid growing up, sometimes we'd have a church service where, to quote my father, the Holy Spirit would be there in such thickness and presence you could cut it with a knife. And you know, some, and you know something different's happening in that service. I've been in prayer meetings like that. And you're, it's, it's, very, it, it's, it's unusual, but they're not normative. They're just every once in a while. I was talking to a man just before the service about fishing. He had just been on a fishing trip. He was describing to me how it felt like every 30 seconds he's reeling in a fish. Every 30 seconds? Fish on, fish on, fish on, fish on. Aren't those magnificent moments? How many of you guys don't care about fishing? There's a door. (laughs) It's just magnificent in those moments. And sometimes we have these communions with God through the Holy Spirit that are just like that. Maybe it's in reading your Bible or your prayer time, and you feel like the Holy Spirit is just there. In a unique, and now, my friends, in the resurrection, that's what it's always going to be like because we're with Jesus continually. There's no more veils between us and him. Now, Paul writes about this to the Thessalonians Because while they believed in the resurrection of Christ, they become Christians, they still did not understand their own resurrection. So here Paul gives it to them. And a few years later, the Apostle Paul writes more about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, one year later, Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians to the Thessalonians, and he has to remind them of what he had told them in 1 Thessalonians, because somebody has started to tell them that the resurrection 
was not bodily, it was only spiritual, and that it had already passed. Listen to what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Now that means that somebody was writing letters and signing Paul's name to them with false teaching in them. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no man, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was with you? I told you these things. Paul reminds them. We know that the resurrection has not come. It has not taken place because the man of sin has not yet been revealed. Once he comes, you'll know the jig is up. But until then, it's not happened yet. Now, Paul said this because someone was introducing this error. And the error was, they were saying there is a resurrection, but we missed it. Now, this error was persistent because about 12 years later, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he tells Timothy not to tolerate people who say the resurrection is past. My friends, there are, pre- there are people around now today who say the resurrection is past. And I'll tell you how to spot them. It's a person who is a preterist. If you don't know what that is, just be, be glad. If you ever run into somebody who says the resurrection is past and the only resurrection left is one in the future, that's called preterism. It's an error. Church councils condemned it as such. And they're out there. Now this idea of a spiritual resurrection only, it caught on then and catches on now because a spiritual resurrection is a lot easier to believe in than a physical resurrection. A a spiritual resurrection is more believable because who knows what happens with spirits? Now, I've never seen anybody rise from the dead. Have you? I said this to a a Pentecostal guy one time in Arkansas, and uh, we were talking about it, and I said... I've never seen anybody raising the dead. Have you? That's the wrong thing to say to Pentecostal. Because he produced a litany of people he'd raised from the dead. And I said, well, let's, let's go see them. Oh, it was years ago, brother. <laughs> I said, let's go down to the graveyard right now. Let's go to the funeral home right now and raise somebody. It's always something way back there in the past. Oh, those found to be fascinating. Anyway, moving on. Christians have to be careful because sometimes we want to try to make the gospel more believable to unbelievers or more acceptable. And I think this gets Christians in trouble sometimes because Christians are so right-minded and logical, that when it comes to the illogical parts of our faith, we kind of get a little wimpy about it. Now, here's what, here's what you believe as a Christian. You believe that Jesus, the God who made this world, Colossians chapter 1 and 2, 
you believe that he was in the womb of the Virgin Mary and that he lived as a baby, that he became a grown man. You believe that the eternal God was confined in time and space into a person, into a physical body, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. You believe that he lived 30 years and never sinned in thought, word, or deed. You believe that when he was baptized by John the Baptist, that a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you believe that Jesus went around doing miracles that, are, that were so numerous that the apostle John said, if we wrote them all down, there wouldn't be a big enough book in the world to hold them. You believe that he raised people from the dead. You believe that he restored blinded eyes. You believe that he straightened out crooked arms and legs. And you believe that he died on the cross. And then when he died, you believe that his death was so impactful that a resurrection took place and some people rose from the dead when he died. And you believe that after he was in the ground for three days, on the third day he emerged from the grave in the same body with which he died. And then he showed himself to 500 people and was around for 40 days. And you believe that this same Jesus walked out into an open place and ascended bodily and physically into heaven. Just straight up. And not just into the sky, not just into space, but past it all. And that he is sitting right now on the throne in heaven. You believe that. You believe he's going to come back. Now, some elements of that somewhere have to, have to strike you as a little bit, whew, <laughs> a little bit far-fetched. And people who hear that, they're always going to go, that's a little cuckoo for me. And what you'll be tempted to do as a Christian is to tone it down to make it more acceptable to their logical minds. And you can't do it. You can't do it. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 2 says. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural mind does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says that to those who are perishing, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved is the power of God and salvation. You're going to be called upon more and more as your life goes on in this age particularly to affirm what Scripture teaches in its entirety. But the pressure to compromise is going to be immense. And I say to you, don't cave. Make the Bible the foundation of your life. If you fail to affirm the Scriptures, you may win a small skirmish with somebody, an ideological skirmish, but you're going to lose your credibility. Now, I'm just, just... I hate, to, I hate to do this, but I don't really hate to do it. <clears throat> I, can see him making, I can see him making the root beer floats out there. But you know, the key to a good root beer float is you got to let the ice cream soften. <laughs> so we go 10 more minutes, all right? Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who I mentioned earlier, traveled across America to universities in the company of a Presbyterian pastor from Idaho named Doug Wilson. And they traveled together debating at colleges the Bible, Christianity, 
and the view of God. It's called Collision Course. It's a little series. If you get a chance to look at, look at it on YouTube, you should. Now, Doug Wilson said that Hitchens would often tell him they would go meet with Christian ministers in different places, and there would be times when it would be just Christopher Hitchens and these Christian ministers without Doug Wilson. And more than once, Hitchens would come to Wilson later and say, look, you can't trust this guy. Because back here where nobody can see, he's given up the farm. He's a liberal. Now, Doug, Doug Wilson, if you guys know who Doug Wilson is, he's a very controversial figure, but he's, a, he, he's, as, he's as biblical on the big stuff as you're going to get. But, but Hitchens said, this is how Christians are. Sometimes in public, they're bold, but then behind closed doors, they're giving up the farm. They're admitting to things they shouldn't be admitting to. Hitchens knows the Christian position. Don't give up what the Bible says. You'll lose your credibility. Jeremiah has this great little reading where it says, Why do you trim your ways to seek love? Stick with what God's word says. Don't cave in to the pressures of the culture. Don't cave in to the unbelieving world. You've got to maintain the truth. You've got to stand for the truth and let the chips fall where they may. Now, you may change your views on theology sometimes because we're all working to understand God's word more perfectly. But if these changes in your theology make you less devoted to what Scripture says and less devoted to the Lordship of Christ, you're going in the wrong direction. If the changes you make in your theology cause the unregenerate world to like and love you more, you're going the wrong direction. You're going the wrong direction. Now, what am I trying to say? Here's four summaries, four summations, okay? Number one, death followed by heaven is not the best part of being a Christian. The resurrection from the dead is the best part because the resurrection is going to enable us to experience the new creation in a glorious, sin-free body and most of all, to experience union with Christ without the distraction of sin. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a thing right there. You ever been reading your Bible or praying and have a dirty thought, have a wicked thought? You ever been reading and praying your Bible? And something dark leaps into your mind. You're like, where did that come from? That's the fallen nature. Because the fallen nature does not want you to have communion with God. That's why when you read your Bible, your mind wanders. You ever had it happen? Reading your Bible and your mind starts to wander? You ever been praying? And while you're praying, start thinking about your to-do list? And then you start to think, I ain't got time to pray. I got too much to do. It's the fallen nature. Fallen nature. I'll quote John Wesley. I don't like to do it, but I will. John Wesley said, When I have a hundred things to do in a day, I don't begin until I spend at least two hours in prayer. Now, if I got a hundred things, things to do in a day, you know, my, my prayer is going to be short. Lord, bless them all. Amen. <laughs> but Wesley was saying, getting the real value out of your day is through prioritizing, saying, God, I really need your help today. And then all those 100 enemies just fall. Tip, 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 tip. I think it's a good thing to remember. Number two, all the dead in Christ, that's all Christians who have died, will be resurrected. 
And of that we can be sure because Christ has risen from the dead. That's why for us as Christians, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Number three, our bodily resurrection theology, it's going to be mocked, expect it, embrace it, and never be afraid to proclaim it because that is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Paul said in Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Proclaim the gospel to people. Trust the power of it. Now finally, this life that you're now living is not your whole life. This is just one phase that's going to be completely overshadowed by the next phase. Because this life, how many of you here are over 40? Say amen. How many of you are still are over 40 but feel like you're 20 in your mind? Amen. How many of you feel like your life is just blown past? I mean, just very brief. This time on this earth is very brief. But, but eternity is without end. It's without end. And in that new reality with a sin-free body in a sin-free world, in the presence of Christ, that's never going to end. It's going to be eclipsed completely. And I don't know if we'll even remember these times at all or not. But this glorious phase of your life is only yours if you believe the gospel in this life. You have to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have to do it. Nobody can do it for you. you got to do it for yourself. You have to understand that you're a sinner and your, your sins are keeping you from God. But God in his love for you while you were a sinner, he sent Jesus Christ in the world to die for you because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you'll put your faith in Christ, if you'll accept the gift of God's love, You'll be saved. Your sins will all be forgiven. Doesn't matter how many sins you committed. Doesn't matter how many sins you committed or what kind of sins you've committed. My friend Don Fortner, we're going to sing a song written by Don here in just a minute. My friend Don Fortner went into an Illinois penitentiary to meet a man on death row who had sent him a letter saying, Come and see me sometime. And the man told Don, he said, Don, I'm here, I'm on death row. He had killed two people. He was going to die. He said, Don, I was here in prison listening to the radio and I heard you on the radio proclaim that there is forgiveness for all sins in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. He said, I never heard that before in my whole life. None of the chaplains here wanted to even tell me that I could have my sins forgiven. But you said it to me and I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he said, and I know I'm going to die, and I deserve to die for my crimes. But he said, I'm going to pass from this life into the glory world because Christ has forgiven sins. Don, Don told me, it, he, he said that was the most disruptive thing he'd experienced in his ministry. Just incredible forgiveness in Christ. You can be forgiven too. But you've got to put your faith in Christ in this life. You're not going to get a second chance when this life is over. No more chances. Maybe God's given you one more chance today to put your faith and trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word.
Thank you for these precious promises. I pray, Lord, that every person here who is a Christian will leave here with, with greater hope and joy. And I pray for those here who are not Christians. Father, I pray that you would that you'd show them that they really need Jesus and they will call upon him. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.